0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 35, Entering Jerusalem. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was not quietly, but triumphantly riding a donkey while the crowd shouted, Hosanna! This moment brings to an end his messianic secret and publicly declares to everyone what he was claiming, that he was the Jewish Messiah. His action in the temple further underlined this claim. The Sadducees took note and resolved to deal with him. If you would like to watch a video of this class or download the course notes, visit restitudio.org. Here is part 11 of the historical Jesus entering Jerusalem. The Passover was the time of year when Jesus came into Jerusalem during the last week of his life. What we've looked at last time was conflict in the ministry of Jesus. And now we're moving into the last week of his life, which is where the Gospels slow it way down. Rather than describing things briefly, there are much more detailed descriptions of what Jesus Encountered. And so this whole scene begins during a period right before the Passover. And the Passover was a time when the population of Jerusalem swelled two, three, uh, four maybe times its normal amount. And there's an estimation from Josephus who lived, uh, who wrote about a generation after Christ, where the Romans required the Jewish high priest to keep account. Of all the Passover lambs they killed. And they counted it as 256,500 lambs. Now, that's, again, a generation after Christ, so it's not necessarily the same exact number the year Christ was there. But it's not going to be that much different. And then Josephus goes on to estimate that about 10 people would eat a lamb. The rule was you could have none left over to the next day. And uh, using his own calculations, he estimates 2.7 million people in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And just to give you some perspective there, the most populated city in the world at that time was probably Rome. And Rome had at most one and a half million people in it. So Jerusalem at Passover was dense. We're talking about every guest room filled every alleyway with people camping out, just a sea of people. And they're all there in this excited festival time to celebrate the time that God judged the Gentiles for oppressing them. Uh, The Passover celebrates God bringing His people out from Egypt, right? The 10 plagues, that's the Passover celebration. So they're celebrating that. Meanwhile, you have Roman soldiers overlooking the people in the temple courtyard from the Antonia Fortress. And it was a tense time of year. Before the time of Christ, about 30 years before he began his ministry, the ruler in Jerusalem was a guy named Herod Archelaus. And Archelaus decided that he wanted to arrest some people during Passover in the temple area. And when he went to do that, the people flipped out, had a riot... Grabbed all the. There's always rocks lying around, I guess, in Jerusalem. So they picked up all these rocks and threw it at the soldiers and killed many of them. At which point Archelaus sent in the full uh, army, and they ended up kill and the horsemen, and they killed 3,000 men while they were offering their sacrifices during Passover. So that had happened 30 years before uh, the time we're looking at tonight. Um, After Archelaus, the Roman procurators always brought in a regiment of the army down to Jerusalem and stationed them in the temple cloisters to quash any potential sedition. Then after the time of Christ, I can't help but share with you this story, there was an incident with a soldier. This was on the fourth day of the Passover celebration. A soldier, in the words of Eusebius, quote, exposed his privy members to the multitude, end quote. Uh, so he flashed them. And that freaked everybody out. I mean, this is, this is the Roman dominating influence, and, and they're being profane in God's holiest place on the planet, the temple. And the people just went crazy. They started, like, crying out, and they were agitated. They started insulting the proconsul. At that time, a guy named Cumanus. And so he sent in the army to the fortress right next door and that spooked the crowd and they started running frantically and the way to get out of the temple area is through these narrow passageways and they ended up trampling 20,000 people to death of their own, just trying to get out of there. So if there was something going to happen, it was going to happen at Passover. I mean, there were three of these main festivals, but Passover especially was a, a time where the, the, the scene is full of gasoline and it just takes a little spark. <laughs> so everyone is on high alert at this time. And the Romans are on high alert. The Jewish Sanhedrin, that's the ruling council, they're on high alert. And you know what they're looking for? Somebody doing something provocative. Some, some sort of charismatic leader. Someone that the people are going to follow into rebellion. That's what they're looking for and if the sanhedrin doesn't catch that person first cuz there's always going to be these people from time to time then they know the romans will take care of it and that'll be much worse all right so jesus during his ministry we've already uh, seen this a little bit when when he ministered to people he would keep his messiah his, his messianic identity a secret this is uh, an incident from the beginning of his ministry in luke 4 he says Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, as to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, just like that. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So this incident shows us that Jesus was sensitive to this. He didn't want people saying he was the Messiah. Even if it was a demon, even if it was the truth, he didn't put up with it. And when he healed people, he said, shh, don't tell anyone. Offer yourself to the priest, right? Give the priest the offering, but don't tell anyone. Unless he was dealing with somebody outside the area of Israel, people that are out, out uh, where they're not going to be a problem, he's going to keep that whole Messiah business under wraps. Even with his own disciples. Look at this. This is Peter... Peter's confession, Jesus had asked, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? The Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus calls him blessed, and then he says to him in verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this is what we call the messianic secret. Jesus knows he's the Messiah. His inner circle knows he's the Messiah. Other people are thinking about it, but it's not public. and, and, And if it goes public, he wants to... He wants to keep it as quiet as possible. And then we come to that last uh, several days of his life, the last week of his life. Before he even comes into Jerusalem, he goes to the town of Jericho. While he's in Jericho, he's on this long journey to Jerusalem. He's been on the road for a while. He's passed through Samaria, and now he's at Jericho, which is a low point, And then he's going to go up the hill to Jerusalem. And when he's at Jericho, there's a blind man there named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, being that he's blind, doesn't know what's going on. He just hears a bunch of people walking around, maybe talking. Maybe there's a little bit of a buzz like, oh, here he comes. Shh, look at this. And he asks the question, who is it? What's, What's happening? And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth passing by. That's what they said to Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus must have heard something about him because Bartimaeus starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, to you and me, Son of David doesn't sound that serious, but that was a, a short-term phrase for Messiah, right? So Son of David is another way of calling him Christ. And this guy is just blabbing out with it. I mean, he's, he's going on and on. He's sh- and they say to him, be quiet. And he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. The whole crowd that's with Jesus, they all stop. And Jesus calls for him, and he heals him of his blindness, And then he says, Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus says, go your way. You know what he does? What would you do if you just got healed by somebody? He followed Jesus. (laughs) He doesn't go his way. He stays with Jesus. And now he's part of Jesus' entourage. You know, he's got his inner disciples and he's got, uh, you know, other disciples that are... are, You know, maybe part of the 72 or something like that. And then he's got other people that are curious, like, what's going on? People are going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. Let's go. You know, and so it's Passover. A lot of pilgrims are coming into the city. Jesus has got this whole group with him. And that is a setup for this moment called the triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus had begun from Jericho, like I said, and he's going to go to Jerusalem. And I found this description by N.T. Wright that I think helps to paint the picture a little bit. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you will know that to go from Jericho to Jerusalem involves a long, hard climb. Jericho is the lowest city on earth, over 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, which is only a dozen or so miles away, is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. The road goes through hot, dry deserts all the way to the top of the Mount of Olives, at which point, quite suddenly... You have at the same time the first real vegetation and the first glorious sight of Jerusalem itself. Even if you were climbing that road every week on business, there would still be a sense of exhilaration, of delight and relief when you get to the top. And so... Jesus is on his way up this road. He's, he's going up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And on his way, he's going to come to a town. And he sends a couple of disciples ahead. And he says, go to the town and go get this young donkey and bring it to me. And so that's what they do. And then they bring him the donkey. And we read about this in Mark chapter 11, verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. these few verses we just read. I just want to spend a few minutes describing it and and really digging into it. There are really three coded actions here. Riding the donkey, waving the palm branches, and crying out, Son of David and Hosanna, blessed is the kingdom of David, and that sort of thing. Okay, so there's the, uh, riding the donkey, there's the palm branches, and then there's the declaration, the cry, okay? Now, riding the donkey, as you might know, is from this prophecy in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter nine, we read about this this incident where it says, Behold, well actually let's start from the beginning there, nine nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. That's what they're doing, isn't it? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So if anybody knows the prophecy, the messianic prophecy of Zechariah, they, they see Jesus coming in on the donkey. They hear the cry of the people. And so what are they thinking Maybe he's the one, maybe he's not, but he is claiming it, that's for sure. Jesus is being provocative here. Jesus is doing something different than his normal operating procedure. It's not, shh, it's, hey, here I am. It's a totally different situation going on here. The second aspect there, the palm branches and coats in the road, symbols have meaning. If I ask you what symbol comes to mind when you think of the United States, yeah, the flag, right? That's our, our symbol for this country, or maybe a bald eagle or something like that, right? Or uh, the White House, right? These are symbols of America. Israel had its symbols as well. And it turns out, for example, when Israel had declared Jehu king a long time before this, it says in 2 Kings 9.13, they all took their cloaks and spread them for him on the bare steps. So that was something you would do for a king. You would put your coat out, almost like the, we would call it the red carpet, right? You put your coat out as, as the king approaches. The palm branches were something else entirely. I have a uh, quote here for you from uh, the book of Maccabees. This is Second Maccabees 10.7, uh, I think, uh, or 10.5. On the anniversary of the day on which the temple had been profaned by the Gentiles, that is the 25th of the same month of Kislev, the purification of the temple took place. So if you remember, I had talked about this before a little bit, but this was over 150 years before Christ. And there was a revolution. Judah was the second one in charge. His father, Mattathias, started the revolution, and then Judah took over. And Judah was this very famous and successful warrior. And Judah was able to take back the temple. The temple had been profaned by the Greek empire. And so he took back the temple and he cleansed the temple. And when he took back the temple, everybody rejoiced. All of the people were just so happy to have the temple back in their own possession. And it says in verse 6 here, The Jews celebrated joyfully for eight days, as on the Feast of Booths, remembering how a little while before they had spent the Feast of Booths living like wild animals in caves on the mountains. Now, the Feast of Booths is a time when you cut down branches and you make little booths and shelters for yourselves. So I guess the people felt like they didn't properly celebrate that because they were hiding in caves and stuff like that. So now they're free to celebrate and... What they end up doing is, it says, carrying rods entwined with leaves, green branches, and palms, they sang hymns of grateful praise to him who had brought about the purification of his own place. And so this starts to become a tradition. This starts to become a tradition where they are going to use these palm branches to declare freedom or liberty or, you know, God is over all, or Israel is free, something like that. Because then a little while later, Judah dies and his brother John takes over, and then John dies and his brother Simon takes over. Simon achieves political independence. And when Simon achieves his political independence, they do the same thing to him. This is uh, from 1 Maccabees 13.51. It says, "...the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches." and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel so this this is something that starts after the time of the Old Testament before the time of the New Testament which is they started using palm branches as a national symbol and I know that for sure because the next one who is John Hyrcanus, meant coins and on his coins he has a palm branch and then the next one after him Alexander Janais who called himself a king also had a palm branch on his coin as well. And then, 100 years after Christ, when there's a Jewish revolution once again, Simon Ben-Kosaba puts a whole palm tree on his coin to represent the national symbol of Israel. And, so, and then also in Revelation, you see it as well. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 it says they were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And so this is, this is not part of our culture but it was something that, they, that people in their culture would recognize as saying, this person is a leader, this person is a king. Uh, this, this is a symbol of our national pride. God gave us this land. It's the promised land. He's going to deliver us. There's a, lot, there's a lot packed into that, right? And then the third thing is the, the cry of the people. Well, let me, Before I get to that, let me read you this quote, also from N.T. Wright. He says, You don't spread cloaks on the road, especially in the dusty, stony Middle East, for a friend, or even a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. And you don't cut branches off trees or foliage from the fields to wave in the streets just because you feel somewhat elated. You do it because you are welcoming a king. And so that's what they're doing. And people in their society, like I said, the city's packed. It's like people everywhere, right? Jesus is coming in. There's a lot of people that are not going to see this happen, right? But there's a lot of people that are going to just look over and happen to see this as well. So this is something that happens sort of like on the side, but then it would create quite a buzz in the city itself. Did you hear, did you hear about that Galilean prophet, how he came in on the donkey and they were calling him the son of David? The son of David? Not just a son of David, but the son of David. You can imagine people saying that. The people declaring Jesus the son of. Well, let me show you this. I have a slide here of uh, a comparison. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John each say this in slightly different ways. Okay, so in Mark it says, "Hosanna." This is one we already read. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. In Matthew we read, "Hosanna to the Son of David." Right. So there's that Son of David phrase. In Luke we read, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." And then John, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're all saying the same thing using different words. The king of Israel is the son of David. And, and, it's, and it's what is the son of David other than the one who brings the kingdom of their father, David? You know, I mean, it's just different ways of saying the same thing. And I'm sure the crowd said many other things, too, along the same lines. They probably said Messiah as well. Um, and so this word Hosanna which is not an English word, it's a a Hebrew word, hoshiana, it means save. It's a a, a declaration, save us, deliver us, rescue us. And it's sort of like a praise to God, and then also that this person, God would work through to save them. Um, And so Jesus is, in the words of R.T. France, this is Jesus' blatant messianic self-advertisement. I love that. His, coming into Jerusalem like this is Jesus' blatant messianic self-advertisement. He is publicly announcing his claim to be God's Messiah, but he could still turn back. If he wasn't sure about it, he could still turn back. He doesn't have to go into Jerusalem. He could turn back, but this is it right here. This is the moment of truth. Is he going to do it? Is he going to follow it through? Because... Claiming to be the Messiah, whether before the time of Christ or after the time of Christ, either side, a hundred years, you'll see that it ends you with your neck under the boot of Rome. Every time. Everybody who ever tries to, to claim to be the Messiah or a leader of the people, unless you're appointed by the Romans, the Romans are coming for you. So this is not just like a cute story about a donkey. This is a political statement. And to be the Messiah is to be king. Right? So this is a political statement, and Jesus is making it. And he and he's got that loudmouth Bartimaeus with him. (laughs) And he's, you know, he's carrying on. And Jesus is not saying shh to anyone. He's like, let's do this. And it's a definitive moment in his ministry. Jesus knows what he's doing, he knows the cost, and he does it anyhow. And then as he gets near to the gates of Jerusalem, he he encounters resistance, criticism, right? And it says, as he was drawing near, and this is Luke 19, 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, and now there's a valley. He's going to come down the Mount of Olives and then up the valley into Jerusalem. But from the top of Mount of Olives you can see Jerusalem. So he's in full view of the city and he's got this crowd with him and they're they're shouting and they're spreading their coats and they're cutting down stuff. And then this is what he encounters. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, get a hold of these people. Control them, Rabbi. They're unruly. Look what they're doing. Do you, can you hear them? And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. The very stones for cry. Like, there is no shutting this up, Brother Pharisee. Like, we're going in, this is how we're going in, and it's a big deal. It's not overstated. This is who I am. That's, what, that's what's going on here. Uh, Daryl Bach writes, The Pharisee's rejection near the end of the entry shows that nothing has changed. The leadership still refuses to accept that Jesus is God's messenger, much less Messiah. Their protest at the disciples' actions is but the first of many acts of resistance at the end of Luke's gospel. The irony is that Jesus declares that if the disciples did not speak out, creation would. Inanimate objects have better perception of what God is doing than do the people that Jesus came to save. What, what we see, in, in the and we'll see this repeatedly tonight, is that Jesus does everything possible to reach these people. I mean, he's already got it with the, with, the, with the average person. He's already got it. They love him. They've kind of like always loved him. But it's the leadership, the ones that are in authority over the people, the ones God holds responsible for the nation. Those are the ones that Jesus is trying to reach throughout this last week, especially, I mean, he's trying to reach everybody, but he really reaches out to them in very convicting ways. Jesus' ministry is God's effort to bring his people back to himself. His whole ministry was that. But they rejected Jesus and thus God himself. Remember how Jesus had said this? This is from John 12. This is actually from the chapter in John that, is, that includes the part with the triumphal entry. That's earlier in the same chapter. It says, John 12:44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say is the Father has told me. Everything Jesus does in this last week is not about his political campaign. It's not about his popularity among the people. It's, he's following a script. And that script is written by his Father, and he's carrying it out to the T so that they would believe in him But if they don't, the word will judge them on the last day. This is Jesus' operation salvation. Operation judgment is yet to come, okay, (laughs) that's in the future. Overwhelmed with with the sadness, with the the Pharisees saying, tell everyone to shut up, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. In verse 41, this is the next verse, right after they said to him, be quiet, and he said, no, the stones will cry out if they're quiet. Um, When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus genuinely loved Jerusalem. He loved the people of God. He doesn't weep that often, right? I mean, he wept when Lazarus had died, right? And now he weeps as he's going into Jerusalem. You know, there's, it's a really weird scene because you have his people, his And they're they're literally putting their coats on the ground in front of him, declaring him king, which is, like, really good. You know, that's that's faith, right? And then you have the Pharisees, and they're like, tell him to shut up. And then you have straight ahead as he's coming into the city, millions, one or more million people, and they're all just doing whatever they do on the Passover to purify themselves, to get ready for when it starts. And he just gets overwhelmed. He said, oh, I just wish... I wish this people would believe. I wish they would repent. I wish they would accept God's offer, this day of visitation. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus weeps. The lament, Daryl Bach says, the lament over Jerusalem shows Jesus' pain at Israel's failure to respond with faith. In 1941-44, to Jesus sounds like Jeremiah lamenting the coming exile, or Isaiah declaring the impending fall of Jerusalem. Jesus' lament over Jerusalem shows that the consequence of rejecting God's messenger is national judgment. When God sues for peace and his terms are rejected, only judgment remains. Jesus predicts the nation's collapse as tragic fact. All right, now we move on to the next major incident, which is, we typically call it the temple cleansing. All right, Jesus goes into the city. There's all this excitement but it's, there's just people everywhere, you know what I mean? And so he eventually blends in, I imagine, with the crowds. And then he looks at the temple, he goes home, he comes back, and he goes into that temple, and he does some serious damage. Uh, maybe not damage, but he, he definitely makes an impression. We can definitely say that. Uh, this is Mark 11:15. 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. In the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? I don't have time to get into all the details of this. There are a couple of different views. I'll just tell you what a couple of different views are. The more popular view is that Jesus was attacking their greed. They were merchandising in the house of God, jacking up the prices, and he's saying, knock it off, repent of this wickedness. Uh, The other view is that when he says den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah. And what they were doing in the time of Jeremiah is they were looking at the temple as if it was a safe haven, even though they were a bunch of criminals in God's eyes. And they were looking at the temple, and they would say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah gives them this shocking vision, uh, prophecy that God will destroy his own temple. Don't think you're safe in the temple if you're going to go worship these other gods or uh, be unjust towards each other, right? And then that's, where, that's the chapter. Check it out on your own if, you, if you're interested. Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jesus is, is quoting from, as well as the other one from Isaiah. But regardless of however you take it as attacking greed or more of a prophetic act, prophesying judgment, whichever way you go with it, it got some attention. Because there's one place at the heart of Jerusalem where every eye is always looking, and that is Jerusalem. You have the Roman soldiers looking down on it. You have the, the, the main chief priest himself, the high priest He's always going to be there. You have chief priests. You have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. You've, you, you've got Herodians. I mean, they're, they're, then there are just tourists visiting that aren't even Jews that are in the court of the Gentiles. And then you have all these people, hundreds of thousands of people that are there because they believe in this God and they care enough to travel some great distances. And in the midst of this, they're buying the lambs, right? That's what they're selling, the lambs is Passover. Jesus is over there like this wild prophet knocking stuff around, pouring money out all over the place. Let me tell you, even even, even in this room, if somebody just started throwing hundred bills up in the air, I think we'd start moving around trying to catch them. You know what I mean Like there, <laughs> there's a scene here that Jesus makes and it doesn't go unnoticed. And so what we read here in um, Luke chapter 19 verse 47 is that And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so we're going to pause it right here, and when we come back, we'll look at the intensified conflict. And we'll look at the stumper questions they throw at Jesus and the parables he throws back at them and really get a handle for how things are heating up in the city. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.